morning. Our first reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 18. Uh, in the small print uh, chair Bibles, that's page 791. And in the large print, that is 1,770. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power." For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading from chapter 3 of the same epistle. First Corinthians 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are are, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what, what is Paul? Only servants, and through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. And by the grace of God has given me. I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be refilled with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And if what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be safe, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to this uh, second of a three-week series which aims to help us as a church draw upon the Bible's wisdom in times of change of leadership. Uh, We've already considered last week, and if you missed last week, I'm very sorry about it. Nice to meet you. I'm Stuart. I'm from the neighbouring church in Roseville. Glad to be among you today. Last week, we talked about an Old Testament transition of leadership. Uh, we looked at the end of Moses' lead. Uh, sorry, not Moses. He, Moses is next week. Okay, so stand by for that one. Last we looked at the end at the end of Joshua's leadership of the people of Israel and what Joshua did to hand over leadership to the people themselves. So that was last week. This week we're at the in the New Testament and we're looking at this young Christian church in the Greek city of Corinth and their struggle. I think, to grasp what Christian leadership actually is. And it's tempting, I think, for us to talk about uh, going through this transition of leadership, uh, you know, from Steve to whomever or whatever is next, right? And we somehow think that's really, you know, that's a big deal. That's That's a remarkable thing. It's going to be, you know, at least as bad as some kind of speed bump that surprises us when we weren't expecting it. It's going to jolt us. It's going to bump us in some way. But you know what it's not? actually not. Christian churches change human leaders pretty often. They always have. It's actually not such a big deal because Jesus Christ is the head of this church. Jesus Christ is the head of the whole church. The leadership actually does not change. The local representation comes and it goes. So the Christians uh, to whom Paul is writing in Corinth in this letter, they had experienced many changes in leadership and multiple leaders, even during their formative years. And so actually I think there's a fair bit for us to learn from them and from this letter to them. At the beginning of the letter, we, we heard that already Paul, Apollos, Kephas, they've all visited Corinth and they've had some significant impact there. But we already also heard that there are some other leaders as well there probably appointed by Paul. Uh, And we learn uh, from chapter 16 at the end of this letter that Stephanus actually has a significant leadership role in Corinth and he's supported by two other good guys, Fortunatus and Archaicus. So there are multiple leaders in Corinth. But there's a problem. The problem in Corinth. The problem of leadership and that's why Paul has written to them. Okay, So... um, I'm just going to quickly just glance back at that chapter 1, the very beginning of the letter, which we read earlier. Uh, Some people from Chloe's household have given Paul some background information. So the letter begins in uh, chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Kephas. And still another, I follow Christ. So what's going on there in Corinth? Come on, get it together, guys. That's really the letter in a short summary, okay? The people in Corinth have kind of picked their favourite leader. And they've split up 
into little factions, little cliques. Some have chosen the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul is the one who first came to Corinth and told them the good news of Jesus Christ. He's the one who started the church there. It was a life-changing message that Paul brought. But some others, they've chosen Kephas. Uh, that's the way that Paul refers to the Apostle Peter. He calls him Kephas. Okay, it's it's an it's a sort of a it's like a nickname. He's actually just using the same name from another language. So Peter, he's a big shot. He, he's like the the leader of all the apostles. And so hey, we go with Peter. He's been here. We like him more. Others, though, they much prefer the style of Apollos. Now, he was a Jew from Alexandria in northern Egypt, and he had a reputation as a very eloquent speaker, a very powerful speaker. He was well-versed in the classical arts of rhetoric. And uh, we can find out, if you want to find out about Apollos, just in case you're wondering, Acts chapter 18 is the place to go. Apollos had ended up in Corinth. He had a great impact for the gospel there. And we know that actually as Paul writes this letter, Apollos is not in Corinth. But Paul has sent message to Apollos, hey Apollos, get yourself back to Corinth. You could do great stuff there. Come on Apollos, get yourself. But Apollos is a little slow in responding. Okay, so we learn that from later in the letter as well. There's another faction in Corinth and they're claiming the only leader that we have is Jesus Christ, which sort of sounds like the right answer. As you read the letter a little bit more widely, though, in 1 Corinthians, you you wonder if this faction are also a little bit off kilter. You wonder if perhaps, with a bit of spiritual pride and snobbery, that they will accept only the Holy Spirit's utterances as from the Lord Jesus, and therefore their only authority comes that way. So it's a bit of a mess in Corinth. What they need is a mature view of leadership with multiple leaders and in fact leadership transitions a mature view of leadership builds a healthy church in the long run that's why paul begins chapter three as he does so that's really where we're diving in today have a look at it with me first four verses brothers and sisters i couldn't address you as people who live by the spirit but as people who are still worldly mere infants in christ i gave you milk not solid food for you are not ready for it indeed you're still not ready It's pretty tough stuff, isn't it? You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So the Corinthians, they needed to, to grow into a mature view of leadership. How does Paul know? Well, because of all the fighting that's going on. For all of the jealousy and the quallering. Literally, Paul says there is heat and strife coming out of you. Every, uh, everyone is full of envy and passion and it's blowing up into arguments. And that's the evidence that you are still babies. Now, this is a little bit of a slight on the people of Corinth. You know, the intelligentsia there wouldn't have liked a bit of an insult. You need to remember Corinth in relation to the capital Athens, I like to think of it as a little bit like Brisbane in relation to Melbourne. Work with me on this one, okay? Corinth, not quite so cultured, but much more lively, right, as opposed to Melbourne. Not as academic, but don't you dare tell the Corinthians that, because they think they're they're it. So this, this assessment of Paul's of Corinth, it sort of stings a little bit. And to top it off, Paul says their immaturity indicates a weak grasp of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, side note, if we were going to do a whole series on the book of 1 Corinthians, we'd need to dive into their understanding of the Holy Spirit and what was going on there. But if I could just sum it up in a nutshell, the Corinthians really prided themselves in their various expressions of the Holy Spirit. But Paul's critique of them is that they have failed to to grasp the basics. They failed to evidence the Holy Spirit truly. They don't get it in their lives, in the day-to-day. That's really the critique that Paul will bring to them. And so we've got these two polar opposites operating here. You can live by the Spirit or you can be worldly. Okay, that's the two ends of the spectrum. Either the Corinthians will be characterized by the Holy Spirit or they will be characterized by the flesh. And Paul, you know, is addressing brothers and sisters. In other words, they're all Christians. They're all Christians here. But their bickering and their disunity indicates probably not down the Holy Spirit end of the spectrum, we're probably down the worldly end of the spectrum, you guys. As I read that, Got me thinking, I don't know if you ever do this, you know, you're kind of reading the Bible and you just stop and you think, hang on a minute, how would I go under that assessment? Would God look at me and say, there's a man of the Spirit? Or would he say, worldly? Answer the question for yourself. In Corinth, Paul is saying, instead of being enamoured by human abilities or the popularity of your leader, you need to grow up. You need a mature view of Christian leadership. And then he's going to paint the picture of what that mature view of Christian leadership is. It's in verses 5 through 9. Okay, Here's how you understand Christian leadership. Verse 5, what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. For we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. So how should the Corinthians view their leaders? Verse 5, they are servants. Verse 9, co-workers in God's service. Leaders in the Christian church are God's servants with an assigned task. And Paul's working a farming metaphor here. There's a specialisation of labour on the farm. Some plant seeds, others water seeds and tend their growth. Both those roles are important, but it is God who actually causes the growth. Now, Christian ministry is like that. There is work to be done. And God depends on his servants to get the work done. And taking that work, he gives the growth. Without Christian workers, there is unlikely to be much growth. Without God, there will be no growth. Both are important here. And together, and perhaps that phrase in verse 9 would be better rendered co-workers with God. I think that's really the sense of the original language. Together with God and his various workers, that's how the harvest grows. The label servant is not very attractive, though. Minister in your church, new guy comes in, very impressive man. Hello, servant. How's he going to feel about that? Wow. It's not a glorious title to give a church leader, servant, but it fits. You see, servants 
while not particularly important or significant in their own right, bear the authority of their master. Their dignity is tied to the importance of their master. Now, allow me to illustrate this by referring you to the best ever TV drama in the whole wide world, The West Wing. You know, you know is anyone, it's, a long, it's a long time ago. A few people know it in the back row. Fantastic. Work with me here, okay. This is a television series about the lives and the work of the staff of the American president back in the day when people really respected the office of the American president. The thing that this series shows about the staff of the US president is that they have little importance or even concern for themselves. They are his servants and they draw all of their dignity from his office. They are only powerful and important because they serve at the pleasure of the president of the United States. Much the same is true for the leaders of the Christian church. They are respected because of their master, because of their commission, and yet they are just servants. They are just like us, ordinary people. And so a mature view of Christian leadership in the local church will view their ministers in this way. Paul has another very important point to make about leadership in the local church to the Corinthians. And to make it, he needs to move on from that farming metaphor. He's been working the farming story. Did you notice, though, at the end of verse 9, how he suddenly just throws in a building metaphor? Do you see? That's where the change. So, you know, verse 9, we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. That's where we shift from farming and fields to building and architecture. Now, I'm a little bit excited by that. I used to work as an architect for about 10, 15 years. I still am involved in building projects all the time. I love it. It's great. Change in metaphor enables Paul to say, build with care. Okay, crop growing requires diligence, that's for sure. But the outcome, well, that's subject to all sorts of things. Drought, weather, locusts, whatever. There's a, but building is different. From builder to building, there is a direct link there, direct responsibility. And Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to build well, build carefully. So we're at verse 10 where this shift goes to a building metaphor. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up... The builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. First thing to notice is that Paul is addressing all of the Corinthian Christians at this point. All of them. You see, at the end of verse 10, he says, each one should build with care. Each one. This call to build well is addressed not only to Apollos or to Cephas or Stephanus, any other of the Corinthian leaders, this is addressed to the whole church. Each one means each and every one should build. 
It doesn't matter if you're 9 or 99. Anyone over 99? Okay, because you were going to be off the hook, but you're not. Okay. If you're a new Christian or you've been a Christian all your life, it doesn't matter if you're a worker or a student, if you're just doing your own thing in life, each one of us builds. Let me ask you, do you have a purpose in belonging to St. Peter's? Why are you here? I don't mean, you know, why did you turn up to church this morning? But why are you a member of St. Peter's? What's your job here? What do you do? It's good to know if you're a member of St. Peter's, it's good to know whether you're a carpenter or a bricklayer. Are you a decorator or a painter or are you something else? I think if we follow Paul's metaphor, we're going to need some goldsmiths and some silversmiths among us, some jewellers and carpenters, hay balers and straw brick makers. Okay? Verse 10, each one means each and every one should build with care, with skill, with expertise and with wisdom. And the reason is that there is actually a reckoning for the quality of building. Sooner or later, everyone will know what kind of a job we've done. Let's see if you can recognise this building. Who knows of the Opal Tower out at Homebush? Yeah, okay. Maybe 18 months ago, none of us had ever heard of the Opal Tower out at Homebush, but now it's infamous. New block of units built up there. It looks rather grand if you've ever been out there and seen it. I have. Um, but it started to fail because of substandard work that was never detected, not called out. It was just, oh, yeah, that'll be all right. That's about right. Good enough. Keep on going. Keep building. But perhaps the concrete wasn't right. Or maybe the reinforcing steel wasn't in the right place or not enough of it. Something was shonky. But what they did was they covered over that structure with some very nice-looking green, shiny cladding. It really does look rather special from the outside. And do you know what? All of the apartments in that building got sold very, very quickly. Hmm. But sadly, as we know, that building has been found to be defective. It is structurally unsound. And the owners of that building have suffered loss. Imagine if you bought an apartment there. What are you going to do with it now? Following that building metaphor, know that we have been given a sure foundation upon which to build. And that foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the reason that we are here. Without the truth that God has come to us in Jesus, died in our place on the cross, defeated sin and death, risen to life to reign over all, without this we are building on swampy ground. But on that foundation, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are secure. And we are strong and we are sure because we only build on him. We're building different parts of the building in different ways with different materials and different gifts and different abilities, but we're all building on the same foundation. And at the end of the project, we will be rewarded according to the quality of the work that we've done. That's exactly what Paul says here in verses 13 to 15. But because we're such good reformed Christians around here, we get a little bit angsty, a little bit nervous about the idea that God would reward us for what we've built. That God will actually reward a life of faithful gospel service. As we read this, though, this is not about being nice or working hard in order to get to heaven. 
Paul is not saying that we are saved because we achieved anything on our own merits. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that the Christian who ends up with nothing, it it all got burned up or maybe they never actually built anything with their life, that person is still saved, verse 15, just says they've got nothing to show for it at the end. So the question we really need to ask ourselves is, okay, what is the building work that's going to last into eternity? What will endure into eternity and bring glory to God? The answer is surely connected in the passage, right? Paul must tell us. The answer heads up to verses 16 and 17. But before I go there, notice what Paul has told the Corinthians and us about a mature view of leadership. A mature and Holy Spirit-formed Christian is not troubled by changes in leadership. Whether they prefer Paul or Apollos, they're not troubled because they know that we are all servants and we are all co-workers with God. St Peter's leadership transition does not all depend on your wardens or all your nominators or the bishop or anybody else. It's not so much about them as about all of us, each one of us. We all have a part to play, we all have a job to do, and because we have a shared project building on the one foundation, we all help each other do our bit, as best we can. Let's have our sleeves rolled up, ready for action. I said earlier, verses 16 and 17 tell us what we're building, about this building work that actually will last into eternity, through whatever testing that comes, even on the day of Christ's return. All this talk of leadership and building gets focused on a single truth in this passage. And the truth is, we're building God's temple. God's people is God's temple. So verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Okay, we already know from verse 11, the foundation is Jesus Christ. There's no other foundation you're going to build on. Now we know that the building itself is the church, Okay, the the successor to God's Old Testament temple. We know now why the bickering and and, and childish kind of arguments about leadership is is so, so bad. If there is division within a church, that's an attack on the building itself. It turns out that the building is God's church. Now, what is God's church? Is it this stuff? Bricks and... It's not, is it, right? We're talking about people. God's church that he is building is people. God's church where he lives personally by the person of his Holy Spirit, which is sacred and holy and precious, is people. Is people. And since we are that building where God makes his home, we should be very careful about how we build. At the climax, at the the end of this sort of farming and then the building metaphor is this truth. Together we are to work on building up the people of God. We work on building up the people of God, that is the church. We're servants together and it's people work that will endure. People work is what will endure. No matter what God has gifted you for, no matter what your part to play is, give yourself to that. 
holy. Invest your life in people. Give it your best. Give it your all because God's people will endure into all eternity. When you introduce someone to the Lord Jesus, that matters. And that matters into eternity. When you help someone grow in their faith, that work has enduring importance. If you're a youth leader or a scripture teacher or you run a small group in your church here, when it feels hard to get motivated to do that, when you'd really rather the night off, remember you're doing something then that ultimately matters in an enduring sense. It's not. I, th- I think sometimes we sort of think, well, it's, it's the frontline guys. They're the people that really matter. You know, like the, the guy that actually goes to scripture to teach, they must be scoring double brownie points and I'm not there, so I'm not. I don't think that's the case. God has gifted each one of us for certain roles in building up the people of God. Let me tell you about a lady whose name is Carolyn. Um, She was a a member in in another church uh, whom I love very much. She was absolutely passionate about Scripture in school. She loved Scripture in schools, but she could not teach. She couldn't teach. And every week on Tuesday morning when the team from her local church went off together to teach scripture, I saw her quietly let herself into the church hall. She had a key and she could get herself into the church hall. And she'd stay there for the morning, praying. One day the church decided that it would go out into the neighbourhood and knock on doors and invite people to church for Christmas. She couldn't do that. But I saw her go into the church. And the whole time, three hours, these people were out on the road knocking on doors. She was in the church and she was praying for them. She was very private about it all and she'd be very embarrassed if she knew that I'd told you about her today. Hardly anyone knew what was going on. But God knows and she was very carefully and very patiently building God's building. And every time a new kid or a new family turned up to church, she would rejoice. She would praise God in such a beautiful way because she had seen her labour growing the people of God. Not many people know about this lady, but on the day that the Lord Jesus returns, I think we will stand back and applaud and marvel at the work of God through her in the kingdom. I tell you her story so that you will ponder what's my job. Why am I a member of St. Peter's? What's the ministry God has called me to that I will give myself to to see people into the kingdom? Regardless of anyone's circumstances, whatever you're capable of, whatever your passion is, build carefully on the gospel foundation that God has given you. As St. Peter's transitions its leadership, let's keep on building God's people, for that will endure into eternity. Will you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you've given us a job in your kingdom, that there is some way that we can express our gratitude to you for all that you've done. Thank you for bringing us to be members of St. Peter's. And Lord, as you build this people, as you build your kingdom, As you reach out into this neighbourhood, please will you use us? Show us what we can do. 
whether it's on the front line or whether it's support or whether it's something else. Lord, will you please use us to grow your kingdom and grant that on the day that you return, great praise will come to you for what you've done through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.